the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back Wednesday, April 6, 2022. I referenced an email the other day from a listener who caught some of my interview with English professor, professor Mark Bauerlein, author of the new book, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, From Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. That was the title of his book. The listener asked me to repeat the books, the other books I asked Dr. Bauerlein about in saying what book from classic literature best explains our times. The options I tossed out were 1984 by Orwell, The Trial by Franz Kafka, Algis Huxley's Brave New World, and Plato's Euthyphro or Phaedo on the trial and death of Socrates. Now, it's important to recall right here for a moment why Socrates died. He was killed. He was sentenced to death for the crimes of impiety and corrupting the youth. Now, it's not that the crime against the youth was abuse, as we have come to know it. Corruption of them in the story was to get them to think differently than the polis or the state, to open their minds, to question, the kind of thing we now know as the Socratic method. Questioning authority used to be protected and an honored thing here, be it from our own founding and revolution to Henry David Thoreau to Martin Luther King Jr. Indeed, it's interesting to pause a moment and think about where Martin Luther King Jr. learned about civil disobedience and his notions of justice. And the answer is that which we no longer are teaching, namely scholarly works from the likes of Plato. Hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go was the Jackson, Jesse Jackson-led chant at Stanford in 1987. And it went there and elsewhere. Note the date, nearly an exact generation ago. But it was that tradition, Western civilization, that very thing that had to go, that allowed for those to chant what they did and, of course, what they refused to understand, which gave Martin Luther King Jr. his entire world view. As King would say, he began his, quote, serious intellectual quest for a method to eliminate social evil by turning to a serious study of the social and ethical theories of the great philosophers, from Plato and Aristotle down to Rousseau, Hobbes, Bentham, Mill, and Locke. All of these masters stimulated my thinking such as it was, and while finding things to question in each of them, I nevertheless learned a great deal from their study. Close quote. That's Martin Luther King Jr. talking about what he learned at Crozier Theological. Classic Western civilization canon. All that and, sure, at a theological seminary, you can imagine he was a reverend, the Bible as well, which is what we students of the philosopher, political philosopher Leo Strauss like to call the blending of Athens and Jerusalem or reason and revelation. Harry Jaffa puts it this way, what we call Western civilization is to be found primarily and essentially in the confluence of the autonomous rationalism of classical philosophy and the faith of biblical religion, Athens, Jerusalem. The vitality and the glory of Western civilization is to be found above all in the mutual influence of these two irrefutable, 
irreducible principles of human life. The dynamic of Western civilization is the dynamic of that interaction. The triumph of Western civilization is to be found in the evidence supplied by both philosophy and revelation that the human soul, no less by the questions it asks than by the answers it believes it has discovered, participates in a reality that transcends all time and change. The tragedy of Western civilization has been the unfettered attempt by political means to vindicate claims whose very nature excludes the possibility that they can be vindicated by political means. To attempt to overcome the skepticism that is the ground of philosophy, it's like trying to jump over one's own shadow. To attempt to remove the necessity of the free and unconstrained faith that is the ground of the Bible and of biblical religion is like denying the existence of the shadow by jumping only in the dark or with one's eyes shut, close quote. But notice, too, what Martin Luther King and our tradition of not killing or censoring dissidents and those who question authority rely upon. The very thing our youth is now corrupting the adult world with, kind of a reversal of what Socrates was charged with, by abandoning it. Freedom of speech, assembly, the press, and the like. Socrates ex exercised free speech and was killed for the crime. Here we planned something different, of course, in America, didn't we? As Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis once put it, men feared witches and burnt women. It is the function of speech to free men from the bondage of irrational fears. To justify suppression of free speech, there must be reasonable ground to fear that serious evil will result if free speech is practice. There must be reasonable ground to believe that the danger apprehended is imminent. There must be reasonable ground to believe that the evil to be prevented is a serious one, close quote. Today's youth and its adult enablers, or the children in adults' bodies, do think they are preventing a serious crime or evil in their censorship ethic. Anything that stands in their way of their vision of the world is a dangerous evil. Why did or do the radical Islamists hate us? Used to be a question we asked, especially after September 11th, 2001. Michael Ledeen gave what is probably the best answer. Because, simply, we are in their way. And we are simply in the way, we conservatives, or even moderates, of the progressive socialists who, when they are being more honest, tell us they are revolutionary Marxists, as the Students for Socialism Club at ASU tells us, to take but one example. And of course, Marxists know well how to deal with those who are in their way. If they are priests or rabbis, they are treated as most sane societies treat drug dealers because we are taught from Marx religion is the opiate of the masses. If they are political opponents, well, you can meet the fate of a Solzhenitsyn if you are lucky and get prison. Or if you are unlucky, a pickaxe in the back of the head. Or if you are in Xinjiang, China, you can just be disappeared. As I said, we considered it differently here in America and did so long before Marx arrived on the scene. There's no good place to insert this, but it should be more than passingly noticed that when we, excuse me, that when woke progressives try to jump on the populist train of their movement, like Gavin Newsom of California bragging last week that he's reading banned books, the brave thing for him to have done would not have been to pull out and picture himself with a novel by Toni Morrison, but the books that are truly banned 
and not by parent groups here and there and school board meetings here and there across the country based on age appropriateness, profanity and locale, but the books banned by entire states, colleges, universities, curricula and pedagogies, namely Plato, namely Aristotle, namely Shakespeare, namely Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and everything Martin Luther King Jr. said gave him his worldview. Has Gavin Newsom ever stood up? Have any of the modern-day opponents of book banning ever stood up for scholars and professors and lectures on college campuses who require security details or whose speeches have to be broken up by police because the socialists engage in, well, socialism? The answer to that is no. Making their cute entrees into our culture wars seems pretty cowardly when you think about it now, though, doesn't it? Sure, it's hip, it's accurant, but cowardly, and thus essentially meaningless, feckless. Used to be different here, as I say, which is why we used to study the lessons from the West, be they Plato or Kafka or even more modern writers like Orwell and Huxley. This is why an adult listener can email me, as he did, asking for a reading list. What are the books he should be familiar with, he asked. He didn't get them growing up, and they seem important and relevant now. Yes, of course, and not the listener's fault. Any more than someone living next to a smokestack is at fault for acquiring emphysema or lung cancer. The academy and the progressive movement has polluted the culture, darkening the good and infusing the oxygen with toxicity. And to the thinking human, which is to say to every human, the tissue of the brain is just as susceptible to poison as the tissue of the lung, depending on the method of delivery. Let us start by understanding the first unique contribution to the world the Western civilization canon taught, as it now seems it is the first of things the progressives have dispensed with, this notion. Political freedom exists only upon that wise and tolerant middle ground where men do not treat other men as brutes because they know that they themselves are not gods. I credit Harry V. Jaffa for providing this explanation, but this restraint, this proud humility, is the attribute of those and only those who see in the order of nature the ground of the moral and political order that we used to esteem here. Does a free society, Jaffa asked, prove false to itself if it denies civil liberties to communists, Nazis, or anyone else who would use those liberties, if he could, as a means of destroying the free society? The answer is no. Free speech is a priceless and indispensable attribute of a free society because it is a necessary means for deliberating on what? Public policy. And now you can understand better why those who travel in those ideologies want to deprive our community of free speech because they do not approve of the public policies we support. It used to be we didn't approve of theirs. But this notion of deliberation never extended to everything, at least not until the progressive era of the last century. Above all, for example, defensible democratic deliberation never extended, as Jaffa puts it, to the question of whether the community shall exchange its freedom for slavery. Certain ends are fixed, and their fixity is the condition of change or mutability in other respects. The government, for example, can deliberate on how to secure the rights to life and to liberty for all. It may never deliberate whether they should be secured. Certain proposals can never be entertained by a civilized community, but we have dispensed with all that teaching and we barely still can debate whether rights to life and liberty or all should be secured. You can't do it, evidently, at the nation's top law school, Yale, for example. Free government rests 
upon the consent or opinion of the governed, Jaffa writes. Law is thus the expression of opinion, and the opinion upon which the law rests is more fundamental than the law itself. The left gets this, thus their appeal to and justification for silencing opposition, not arguing with their opposition, silencing it. If we fail to see the sanity and nobility of our charter, of our own freedom, Western culture, our constitution, our declaration, we will fail to recognize the barbarism of totalitarian doctrines. I cannot stress that point enough. It bears repeating. If we fail to the sanity and nobility of the charter of our own freedom, we will fail to recognize the barbarism and totalitarian doctrines of others' theories. We have discounted freedom here, starting with speech, dissent, you name it. And those who did that had no problem instituting what would become barbarism, see COVID, and totalitarianism, see COVID, see our campuses, see our social media, see the war against our children and our schools, see the war against childhood, see the war against speech and religion, see the marginalization of opposition by labeling it psychiatrically unstable or racist or bigoted. So, yes. So long as California governors and others on the woke left want to talk about not banning books, maybe they need to be called out for much worse, banning an entire culture of thought, discussion, and teaching, and thus banning people. If you want to know why we can't esteem Martin Luther King Jr. anymore, or his ethics, or his example, it's because we banned the teaching of his teachers long ago. And one of the first to start that was, ironically enough, Jesse Jackson. I'm Seth Leapson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. A couple of things uh, that I did want to go over uh, with you all. Um, first of all, uh, let, let's talk about this, um, this killing uh, and shooting of 12 people, six dead in Sacramento for a moment, if we can, may we? Uh, two brothers have been arrested, and it turns out one of them, at least, was, of course, given early release. Early release. We're doing this again. We're doing this again, just as we did in Waukesha, um, just as we continue to see violent crime upticking and DAs, in this case, doing the right thing, but parole boards and the governors in these blue states having parole boards and departments of corrections officials not doing the right things when the DAs are. Um, Exclusive. Suspect in Sacramento mass shooting was out of prison despite 10-year term. You know what it reminds me of before I get to the story too terribly quickly? It reminds me of the moment in the uh, Ketanji uh, uh, Brown-Jackson hearings when Josh Hawley had the goods on one of the cases that dealt with uh, child pornography, and she gave an early release. She gave a three-month sentence to a violator who was 19 years old, only for him to have to reappear before her for recommitting the crimes when he got out early. Interesting that that part of this is not really getting discussed. And when people talk about Democratic DAs, Democratic officials, you know what? Be careful. Be careful. We have these problems with Republicans as well. 
I don't need to point to you, the governor of Utah right now. Let's just take this, the, uh, I, I don't know, is he the senior senator or the junior senator? Mitt Romney for a moment. Mitt Romney's vote on Ketanji Brown-Jackson. A year ago, a year ago, she, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, was being considered by the Senate to sit on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, what people argue is or what people will say is arguably the second most important court in the country. D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is a place where people like Robert Bork have sat, uh, Ken Starr. It's often a feeding ground. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's often a feeding ground for or is that the right word? Feeding or breeding ground, I guess. Breeding ground for the Supreme Court. Often, not always, often. So anyway, a year ago, when Ketanji Brown-Jackson was up for that nomination, Mitt Romney voted against her as a U.S. senator. The Senate confirms those seats, too, all federal courts, right? He voted against her. Then all this stuff comes to light. Then all this stuff about her being easy on child predators comes to light. Not to mention this woke language business about not wanting to define what a woman is, which told you everything you really probably needed to know about how progressive and how fluid this person is going to treat the law, how serious this person is going to treat the Constitution, how well this person is going to adhere to basic common sense rather than progressive upheavals of the law. That's really all you needed to know. And Mitt Romney then votes yes for her, votes to approve her for the Supreme Court. So when we go after, we're we're talking about Democratic DAs or Democratic officials in blue states, or any states for that matter. Just keep in mind, we've got our own problems here too. Raises an interesting question as to why Republicans, Mitt Romney's not alone, uh, Susan Collins and, and, and Lisa Murkowski voted for her too. It's just that they didn't have that reversal vote. They didn't change their vote for the positive when they learned worse and worse things. It makes one wonder why he felt he needed to vote for her. This is the same Mitt Romney, of course, who was proudly marching with and making claims for Black Lives Matter as well. It's an odd thing for him to think he needs to be doing this. Is the reason such that he thinks he will get better treatment from the media someday, that he will get better, uh, better treatment when he leaves office, that he will be considered an elder statesman, that he will get the kinds of headlines that John McCain got for being the kind of guy that always kicked his party in the teeth. Maybe, maybe, if that's the reason, it's a good reason for the party not to be supporting him anymore, though. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. 34 past the hour brings us John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates with his culture and economy update, his website, grandcanyonplanning.com. And he has his own radio show here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., The Word on Wealth. John, how are you today, sir? Fantastic. Thank you, Seth. Glad to have you, as always. Uh, This is right in your wheelhouse, as they say. Final days for contributions to retirement accounts that people need to be aware of. Tell them what they need to be aware of. Very true. Of course, um, April 18th this year is the filing tax deadline date. Uh, So for those of you out there who have not started your taxes, 
boy, you've got uh, a short period of time to get them in. Now, even if, again, I'm not a tax expert, however, um, if you do not file your final tax return on that date, you can file for an extension. But one thing, Seth, that is critical is, is that if you do owe money, IRS expects you to pay whatever your tax liability would be for 2021, even if you don't complete your tax return by the filing tax deadline, even okay. filing an extension, I should say. Mm-hmm. But one of the uh, areas that you can um, use to limit your taxable income is contributions to retirement accounts. And we talk about those all the time. I talk about them on my show as well and with all of my clients. Traditional IRAs are very common. Uh, and that's, of course, a contribution of $6,000 is the limit. Seth, if you're under the age of 50, once you hit 50, there is a catch-up provision which allows you to contribute an additional 1000 So $7,000 would be the maximum contribution for you. Uh, and you still can do that up until April 18th this year. Okay. So if, if you haven't done your contribution for 2021, you can do it. Um, now, there are others as well for those SEP IRA contributions as well. Uh, that's another form of a retirement account, which allows individuals who are self-employed uh, to be able to contribute a larger amount than 7000 because that's kind of an inconsequential number for many people. However, with a SEP IRA, you can contribute up to 25% of the compensation that you earn from your company. Uh, up to 61, I'm sorry, $58,000 in 2021. Okay. So that's a big number, uh, but it's either the 25% of your income or 58,000, whichever is lower, right? So if you're made 100,000, you can only contribute 25%, uh, not 58,000. So, but talk to your tax advisor about that as well if you have a if you're self-employed. But it might be a little bit late for you to set up a SEP IRA at this. But point theoretically, what you're saying, though, if I read this, if I read you right, John, mm-hmm. if I hear you right, it's that even if you think you owe, and even if you are going for an extension, you can still put money aside that would yes. lower your what you, would lower your 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 2020 reporting exactly or right. 2020 um, no, tax liability tax liability right. 2021 yeah. right. right. That's exactly right. So um, something for people to consider. Uh, But you need to have that, uh, at least the extension filed, along with any tax liability that you would have. Okay. Gotcha. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Pertinent to our conversation yesterday, Mm -hmm. I see that there's still talk from the Fed. The big headlines are that they're still signaling that they are going to uh, look look at uh, uh, point uh, rate increases, right? And also reducing the um, the debt, you know, the Fed's debt. They're talking about $95 billion a month of uh, trying to reduce um, the, the bond holdings that the Fed has. So there are a lot of uh, moving parts to what the Fed is trying to do here to battle the inflationary pressures that we're feeling. And I think the market today, between yesterday and today, got a little bit nervous about this because of some of the comments that were made. Uh, and then uh, the uh, March minutes came out uh, talking about the raising of rates. And uh, I think most are looking for a half a percent of a raise uh, in the next uh, meeting from the Fed and potentially another few months of half, you know, 50 basis point um, increases. And that's certainly going to be a challenge. Now, there was another comment also by um, Janet Yellen, and uh, she basically said that is uncertainty of the war in Ukraine as to what ultimately yeah. is going to affect us here in this country with our inflationary um, you know, pressures that we're feeling and f- saying basically that, hey, this is going to be worse than, we're, than we all thought. 
So a lot of negative comments being um, thrown out there from the Fed and from the administration. And this is uh, what's got the uh, stock market kind of gyrating a bit. And uh, it can get a little bit nerve-wracking. There's no question about it. And, Seth, I mean, even myself, for our clients, we're looking at ways that we can minimize any type sure. of uh, negative uh, response, you know, within stocks and how we can. Uh, yeah, there are ways to protect. Yes, yeah, we're there looking are ways at those uh, and making adjustments to our portfolios as we see necessary, of course. Thank you, J.D. I appreciate it. You bet. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Sipic and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Go to our website, schedule an appointment, grandcanyonplanning.com. Thanks, Seth. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As we do every uh, every time this week, every Wednesday, we check in with our Robert H. Jackson Fellow in Constitutional Studies, Brett W. Johnson. He is a partner at the law offices of Snell & Wilmer, SWLaw.com. Brett, happy Wednesday. How are you, sir? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Seth. You betcha. Brett, uh, thanks for doing this um, because, and I encourage listeners, if they do have questions, uh, to email them to me for your appearances. We did get several over the last, no surprise, with the education wars going on. Over the last several days, I got a bunch of people asking um, if we could explain um, the transparency law, that the, uh, an order that the governor signed uh, just a little less than a year ago. And, you know, maybe tie it, if we can, to the uh, the uh, Parents' Bill of Rights as well, which is actually part of our revised statutes, too. Can you can you just talk a little bit about some of that? Yeah, happy to do so. So as, as, way, as, as a way of background, actually going back to 2010, um, there was an effort by the Arizona legislature and, quite honestly, legislatures across the country to do the same thing, which is add um, a, par- a parent uh, right. It didn't just cover educational records, but actually covered a wide gambit of, uh, of areas where parents um, can can control the upbringing um, of, of their own children and make decisions that are best for them and their and their family, which is, uh, you know, a, a principle. It's actually a fundamental right that the U.S. Supreme Court has recognized going all the way back to the early 1900s um, of the ability of parents to control the education of their children as mm-hmm. well as their upbringing. Mm-hmm. So, so that that was in 2010. Um, then um, the the governor passed and the Arizona passed the transparency law. We're uh, basically reiterating a lot of the patient bill or the patient parents. Parents, there's too many bill of rights out there right now. They're all they're all important. They're all important. The, the parent bill of rights in the, in the sense of um, that, that parents cannot be denied access to information concerning their, their children, and especially the curriculum um, that they were being teached or um, other kind of behavioral issues or, or things that are important for parents to understand. Um, of course, there, there's always a federal angle here. and yep. there's, a, there's a law called FERPA um, that basically restricts a lot of the information that educational institutions are able to pass on to parents or other third parties. And I think the transparency law uh, from last year and, of course, some of the bills that are going through the legislature down here in Arizona this year are, are meant to kind of push back on some of those principles to give parents a lot more control. Uh, most notably, real quick, is that you know, there is a bill going through Arizona, and again, uh, uh, similar to other legislation in other states. In Arizona, it's here by uh, Representative Steve Kaiser, who's put together a bill HB 2161, encourage anybody to uh, Google it again, HB 2161. It reiterates the parental privacy uh, or, or right, uh, bill of rights, parental bill, bill of rights, 
but it adds one other feature that it had been missing from going back to 2010, which was an enforcement provision. Ah, yeah. So before, you had the right, and of course, you could go into federal court or court and say, hey, my constitutional right was being violated in this context. But this more specifically gives an enforcement provision where, where um, um, parents are able to challenge activities that are involved, governmental action that's involved in their children. Now, we've discussed this element, too, that we're about uh, that I'm about to raise before on other things. Um, But if you look at, you know, the version of what we did, which for some reason didn't get the attention when Florida did it. But um, right. But but when Florida did it, the feds came out just recently, uh, I think over the weekend, actually, uh, and talked about how, you know, there will be a conflict here with the federal federal guidelines, federal law at least as they see equal protection and things like that, that they think the, that, that, that what states like Florida, presumably Arizona, are doing will conflict with. So we are going to see more of that kind of thing, aren't we? Or maybe not. Maybe you think that the feds have. I, I think we are. Okay. You know, you know, his, history is definitely repeating itself. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the cases that I referenced earlier from the 1920s, these were the similar issues where the government was trying to direct um, how a parent raises a child and believes that the government knows best, right? And and it's it's not a strict scrutiny type standard, which is almost impossible to overcome. It's right. Basically, the government has to have some compelling reason to to be um, basically forcing parents and children to to give up this kind of fundamental right um, to transparency and, and parent parental access to uh, the ch- child's development. Um, if I if I read you right on that point, Brett, sorry to interrupt. If I read you right uh, right on that point, just to clarify, that sounds. If I read you right, that the states will have the better of that argument, or did I read the, you the exactly states, the wrong way? <laughs> no, no, I, I apologize because the, it's it's still it's a fundamental right of the parent, uh, right? Uh, so uh, it's the uh, reverse. Okay, you're okay, not looking okay. at the government's right to to issue the issue, so you're going to have a higher compelling standard rather than. It's some legitimate government interest, and believe me, some legitimate government interest is a very low standard. Yeah, yeah. Now you're going to need a compelling reason to okay. take away a parental right, okay. and and I just don't think that the federal government, for sure, using federal law under a preemption type standard, is going to be able to overcome that. Do we still uh, look at these constitutional issues uh, the way I had learned them years ago? Basically, are there three levels of that kind of scrutiny still, or are we adding things? <laughs> are we slipping new no, levels no, in? There, there is. Okay. There is. So it, it's, the, it's the strict scrutiny, yeah. and then the legitimate, uh, and then the uh, and then the intermediate uh, um, discretion, and then rational basis. Right. Those are the three two, three different standards, and this fundamental, although fundamental, yeah. It falls within that that secondary secondary column of you better have a very good compelling interest for the state to intervene or interrupt a parental right of a child, and you see this even on juvenile court. Right, you have a parent who maybe even be incarcerated, and the ability to take away that parental rights, even though that person's going to be in jail for the rest of their lives, um, is, is is tantamount. And they have to go through a whole due process hearing to get that done. So it just shows you. Um, how fundamental of a right this is, and, and it's very, very tough for a government to interfere or intervene with that, that, those kind of rights. So it sounds like between uh, – I don't necessarily mean to be making a partisan point here, but it sounds like between what the legislature here has done and the governor has done over the last, let's say, year and a half or so, 
along with what parents are now trying to do in running for school board from with the, with the new appreciation of what they're running for when it comes to curriculum and that sort of thing it sounds like we're kind of trying to attack this from two angles at least uh, at least uh, the, for lack of a better word conservatives in Arizona are trying to attack it from two two angles right and I think I think that that's exactly right. Um, but th- those are the two angles, uh, obviously, from from the state trying to give the rights, the parents exercising that rights, getting on um, the gover- uh, getting on these different boards. But there always is that third element, whether or yep. not we're talking about yep. election law yep. uh, or, or anything. It's it's that judiciary yep. element. Yeah. Um, and very rarely will the government run to take this action, but you'll have other individuals who try to push an agenda through the judiciary. Sure. Sure. Um, so in, in this context, it's, uh, the, the three, three-legged three cha- chair is definitely going to be utilized. Yeah, and public interest law firms and that sort of thing. Yeah, I get exactly. it. I get it. All right, brother. Well, thank you very much. Brett Johnson, as usual. Brett W. Johnson from Snell & Wilmer, SWLaw.com. If you uh, want to learn more about uh, the great work they do or if you uh, are in need of uh, their services, I can't say enough about them. Brett, until next week. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You betcha. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. My gosh, I didn't get a chance to uh, welcome back Chris uh, Llewellyn uh, for the show today. He is our producer pro tempore. Bill is out today. We'll be back tomorrow. So, Chris, uh, thank you for doing this. We'll catch up with you in a little bit. Much appreciated. I wanted to say one other thing about um, the uh, the men who were uh, so far arrested after the mass shooting in Sacramento, uh, shooting 12, killing six. Hopefully it stays at six, although using the word hopefully there is uh, beyond a stretch of uh, rational use of the English language. We just hope it doesn't grow any further. I wanted to raise another issue that uh, I was surprised to see raised by, of all people, Geraldo Rivera earlier today when he was talking about this story. And, of course, the story being that uh, one of these two brothers was released very early, much earlier than his sentence uh, would have uh, let him uh, otherwise roam free, to create this kind of uh, havoc. And what Geraldo said was, you know, it's possible that a lot of us were wrong about this notion of super predators. Are you familiar with this notion of super predators? Super predators was a term that was popularly used in the 90s. Um, it was used a lot, by the way, by one United States senator named Joe Biden to describe the growing rise of violence being committed by teens and not just the growing rise of teen violence, but the growing um the growing uh, grotesqueness of it, the growing uh, boldness of it, the growing uh, violent nature of these crimes, if you will. And uh, a, a criminologist, a political scientist of some repute named John DeUlio came up with the phrase describing super predators. Uh, in fact, he warned in a titled piece in a magazine, Beware the Coming of the Super Predators. And over the last 10 or so years, people have been saying that that phrase super predators needed to be retracted and people shouldn't be talking about super predators anymore because it had a racial connotation. Well, it never had a racial connotation, of course. It was John DeUlio's the last thing from a racist uh, and, you know, the people who were using that phrase, everyone from Hillary Clinton to Joe Biden – 
I mean, you know, you and I can make arguments about their racialism. I don't think they would be in any way um, uh, themselves wanting to say that they were racists. or, But they have come to disavowing that term super predator. What's interesting about that term super predator is it described what caused the violence. And guess what? It wasn't just poverty. Without exception, the families of these boys who were committing these crimes were a social fabric of fragile and undependable social ties that weakly bound children and their parents and other socializers. That's the technical language that DeUlio used. In point of fact, it wasn't about poverty. It's about family structure. In almost every case, you saw no family structure in these young boys' lives, mostly no fathers. That's something, no matter how much we wish, we will not get rid of as the driving factor in these super predatory crimes. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.